Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast, featuring my very special guest and good friend, Sir Stephen Wilkinson. Stephen is a businessman, a writer, and a friend who's taught me much over the course of that friendship. Now, this conversation was inspired by the recent edition of Things That Make You Go Hmm that I wrote about the renewed strain being placed on the EU, a piece in which Sir Stephen explained to me I'd made some erroneous assumptions. So I thought, what better place to find out why I'm wrong than publicly? Stephen is the author of the excellent Pitchfork papers, which you'll find at goodandprosper.substack.com, and he can be found on Twitter at SKN Wilkinson, both of which I would strongly recommend you follow. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The End Game, Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, and Shifts Happen, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the Silver Tier get both the podcast and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, on with the show. So, Stephen, welcome. It's so good to see you, uh, it, even if it's virtually this time as opposed to in person. Thanks for doing this. Very much looking forward to it. Delighted that you asked me on. Well, look, as I've already uh, established in, in my introduction to this conversation, the subject at hand is Europe. And um, the piece that I wrote fostered a piece that you wrote, which I found infinitely more interesting than my own, I have to say, and infinitely more on point, I think, in given what's happening in Europe right now. So, so let, let's talk about what is happening in Europe. My supposition, which I'll go over briefly for people that didn't read it, was that we may be once again at a point where the stresses and strains put upon Europe, or the European project, I should say, by having a monetary union but no fiscal union and, and, and a, a, a promised but not delivered banking union, may finally be reaching a point of criticality. Uh, and that's something that you kind of picked apart beautifully in your latest Pitchfork Papers piece. So given that you have an awful lot more experience in Europe, I want to get you to lay out how you see the project, not necessarily within the context of my piece, but really with a fresh perspective of your own. But before you do that, perhaps you could let the people listening who aren't familiar with your background in a little bit on your on your relationship with Europe, the time you spent there, because I think that's important to understand that this is a grounding of someone that's spent you know, a lifetime there, basically, rather than just one of those English guys like me that opines on Europe from afar. I will gladly do that in as succinct a way as possible. I, I left the UK um, after my time at Durham University in um, in 1987. I'd, I'd married very young to, I'd married a German girl, um, and I'd spent some of my university time in Germany, and I, that's, she was a mate of a mate of mine. Um, and I had the opportunity in early 1987 of, um, of working for an American bank who were just opening an office in Munich. And I sort of jumped at the opportunity, um, mainly because I really didn't know what, how I was going to feed my 
freshly established family with a degree in German literature and a focus on medieval German. So I had a, my German was, was okay and I had an orientation of German, but the idea of actually studying something that might make me a salary was quite appealing. And I joined Merrill um, in 1987 in the summer, just before the crash. So two months, three months prior to the, the October breakdown. And I'm absolutely convinced I would never have been hired because I had a hiring freeze immediately afterwards and things changed after that 1987 crash. But anyway, I was in and <laughs> and I, did, I made the best of it and found that I was actually quite interested in that and, and stayed in financial markets more or less for a number of years. And I suppose I never left, but my interest has always been in business. And what I found fascinating in Germany was there was these incredible businesses, these Mittelstand businesses, manufacturing and exporting all over the world, with a very low grasp of finance. They really had no clue. And financial statements weren't something they looked at. The average German business gets monthly statements from their tax advisors and accountants that are completely incomprehensible. The only people who understand them are other accountants and bookkeepers. As management tools, they are useless. And I was fascinated because I was used to seeing financial statements in a certain presentation. You, know, you had the balance sheet, you had the P&L, and if you were lucky, you had a cash flow statement, and you had notes, and you had some management explanation. And all you got in Germany was this, this jumble of numbers that were ledger accounts presented I don't know, alphabetically or something. And they were, they were useless, completely useless. And I came to realize that the way that Germany was funded and the way that German, the Germans interacted with money was fundamentally different to the way that Anglo-Saxons think about money and think about the way that capital interacts in their businesses. Money was just another input variable, and there was lots of it because Germany's massively overbanked, full of regional banks. Every region had its own sort of hidden champions and Mittelstand industry, and the job of the banks was to give them money. That was you know, to keep employment going and to keep working capital levels where they needed to be, and it was, all, it was mostly subsidized through the Landesbanken and the Sparkassen and the Fox and Raiffeisen Bank, which is a cooperative banks, that all somewhere along the line had government guarantees or, or regional guarantees. So capital was cheap. People didn't really think about it. But banking was relationship-based, although it was moving more towards the, um, to the centralized data-driven model. It was still very much, it was very generous. And every single German businessman that I talked to at a certain level so low level to mid level had personal guarantees, and the banks were fine because they had liens on the property, and the property you know they had it for generations, and it was going up, and it was worth many times the value of the working capital loan. So the whole role of capital was a different one because Germany had never gone through that secondary banking crisis that the UK went through. And I remember, I don't remember the details, but I remember the the atmosphere of panic in the business community because my family were in business when banks started calling in loans and secondary banks you know midlands was midland was tottering and 
Barclays was tottering and all the secondary banks were tottering. That was the Slater-Walker crisis, um, 1973 and 74. And that accelerated a shift in, in the way that UK businesses regarded the stability of their banking relationships. In other words, they, didn't, they knew they didn't have any stability. And that forced a re-equitization of balance sheets and a diversification of different sources of long-term funding and allowed that Anglo-Saxon mentality of getting onto the stock market, getting a listing to flourish, particularly as we then moved into the 80s. And that never happened in Germany. The idea of a German Mittelstand company floating, that was something that only very, very few did, and they were a bit dodgy. So the, the whole, my, my, I've sort of got myself off track, but my, I have been on that cutting edge between real business and the financial markets for all of my life. And I've always seen myself as a translator between those two often very different worlds. They think differently, they have different mental models, they have different language, they have a different approach to capital. And I've always seen myself as being in, the, in that liminal area between the two, having an understanding of how both think and acting as a translator between those two worlds. So, in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and so, you know, that time, and you spent just shy of 30 years in Germany. Which is, which is Which is, for most people, an entire career. Got another career going now, but we'll park that for another day, hopefully. And, and, and what I want to talk about is Germany within the context of this EU project, because I think those of us who've kind of observed this passing parade for the last 20-odd years now, after the GFC in in 2008, obviously, the stresses became apparent quite quickly. And, and you know, I, I kept replaying Margaret Thatcher's final speech in, in Parliament, talking about where she saw the European Union would finally end up without the fiscal union, exclusively being a monetary union. And it looked incredibly prophetic. And I think the Brits kind of sat there and thought, well, this was always going to happen. In Europe, it was a slightly different view. But always the key to the whole thing was going to be Germany. And, and I think Many of us outside Germany made certain assumptions about how Germany would react to given stresses on the system, and, and more importantly, why they would react that way. And the piece you wrote recently in the Pitchfork Papers, which I thought was absolutely tremendous, went some way to explaining to those of us who don't have the kind of background you have in Germany, why we may be very wrong about how we think about Germany's response to this. So if you, I'm going to leave all the heavy lifting to you, but perhaps you would kind of crystallize the general ex-Deutschland view of Germany and its place in the Union, its likely reactions, and then give us some color on the reality of that, because it's um, it's wholly different, I think, to the general perception. Um, that's, yeah, I'll try. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I realize it's a sweeping <laughs> question. Um, make a, what I will try and do is answer it backwards. Okay. Um, because that's how I came to the piece. You did a really useful and very enjoyable Twitter space with Doomberg and a chap called Wall Street Silver I've never yes. heard of before, but, um, where there were something like 2,000 people on there. It was fabulous. And it, they invited you on specifically to talk about your the end of the euro and the end of the, and the European banking crisis, which you had laid out very intelligently and logically.
Ripple Conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.